0: Welcome to Conversational Commerce. Each week, we'll be having real and raw conversations with operators and experts in e-commerce all about what conversational commerce means to them. I'm your host, Stephanie Griffin. Let's jump in. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, PostScript. There are other SMS solutions out there, but PostScript is hands down our favorite SMS tool for e-commerce brands using Shopify and Shopify Plus. They work with some of our favorite brands like Olipop, Brooklinen, Kapari, and thousands of others. And sure, they are our sponsor for this show. Thanks, Postscript, but we love them for many other reasons. Postscript is the leader in powering brands to have two-way conversations with their customers using conversational commerce. They have integrations with your favorite platforms like Gorgeous and Clavio, so your brand can be truly conversational. Most importantly, their customer support is next level, I've worked with brands that use Postscript and have been blown away by their customer support. It's no wonder they have over 1400 reviews and are rated 4.9 stars in the Shopify app store. For a free 30 day trial, check out our link in the show notes or visit them at postscript.io. Again, that's postscript.io.
1: Hey folks, welcome back to conversational commerce. Today is a really special episode uh, to me and for the show. We are definitely saving the best for last this season, in my opinion. So welcome to episode 10. And I am so, so, so excited to introduce a longtime friend, mentor, um, all around one of my favorite people, just in life, but also in, in this wacky, wacky email world. Her name is Jen Capstraw. Some of you might know her as one of the co-founders of Women of Email, and she is also entering her 20th year as an expert in the email industry. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank
2: you for such a warm welcome. Yes, I'm one of the elders of email. It's (gasps) trippy,
1: right? It's wild. It's wild. I've personally learned so much from you. I am sure I am not uh, the only one. So, again, so honored to have you on the show and can't wait to start unpacking your many years of not just email experience, but obviously marketing experience. And something we do love to kick it off with on the show, as we're called conversational commerce is I want to get your personal kind of take on when you hear conversational commerce, what does it mean to you? I think of two-way conversation, right? There's engagement,
2: Mm -hmm. you know, you're making me want to respond to you, Mm -hmm. your brand. That's something that marketers keep losing sight of. Mm. The email channel is meant to be a two-way channel. The SMS channel is meant to be a two-way channel and We are still blasting.
1: You're so right. Bye, 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 (laughs) bye. You know? (laughs) (laughs) You took the words out of my mouth and I you're you're beating me to the punch because I have I have more questions on that. First question being, would you say that email was one of the original conversational channels? And have we really kind of I guess you your your pre-answer to that is like, have we actually achieved the conversational element um, you know, that we know email could potentially have? Well, some brands have. Mm. Some brands have not.
2: It's eh, a little bit yes, a little bit no. I mean, if, if you're still sending messages with a no reply address, that's a problem. Also, it's a problem that it's not easy to accept those responses. So mm-hmm. there's a barrier there. And the idea for solving that has been like my startup idea for years. And I don't have the technical expertise to figure out how to solve that. <laughs> Somebody needs to make that easy. That's a multi million dollar idea right there. But um, even if you are just inspiring some kind of emotional reaction or emotional connection, we can think of that as a sort of a connection, a human not necessarily conversational if you don't hear what I'm saying, but if I'm feeling something, it's happening, mm-hmm. right? You're you're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I can respond to you with my engagement. I can respond to you with my clicks. Um, I had the opportunity to judge the Litmus Awards last month. And there was this one email, I think it was in the B2B category, and it was from an agency – um I think that they were in Eastern Europe, called DAO or D-A-U. And they had a team of students put together this email and as an experiment. And they sent the message to their audience. And it had a ninja theme. And these little ninjas are running across the screen. And there's all these animated GIFs. And there's lots of jokes about like, hey, we're students. And um, It was just very real and authentic and fun and playful. And it had a 20% reply rate, Mm. not like literally somebody hit reply and said, this is awesome. This is great. I love this. And I have never, ever in my life heard of a campaign that had 20% of recipients reply to the message. That's unheard of. That's incredible. That is such a powerful signal of success. Mm -hmm. That's doing it right.
1: Yeah, what a fantastic example. I might need to get my hands on that. I know they just recently published the the winners from the the Litmus Live uh, competition for that. But yeah, I think. And to your point, I think the key there is that they were actually able to track it, right? Because it's actually not easy in certain platforms. Stephen C, who has responded to you, even some of the major players these days. And so can you say more about that in terms of how many folks, you know, are even tracking reply rate these days? Is that like a common, I haven't experienced that to be a common metric that many folks are looking at. I've never seen
2: that in a... uh in an email dashboard Mm -hmm. or in anyone's reports because it's such a rare experience. Every now and then I'll get a campaign, uh, an onboarding campaign that it's almost every message is HTML. And then there's that one message that looks like it's Mm one-to-one. It's mostly text. I mean, it's technically HTML, but it looks to be like a text message. And um, it's from a, a single person and it invites a reply. And I bet those brands are tracking the engagement. And I always hear that that is the most highly engaged message in the whole onboarding campaign. The success is tremendous. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of faked, right? Did Stephanie sit down and write Jen a message in the middle of her trial of XYZ app? No. (laughs) <laughs> but if, if I hit reply, you know, Stephanie should be the one receiving it. Stephanie should be the one replying to it. So uh, yeah, I think it's pretty rare that anyone is tracking replies. It's rare that anyone is prioritizing replies and deliverability specialists will tell you like, this is so good for your reputation, but it also, it, it's it's so good for your relationship with mm. your audience.
1: Yeah, I, I will admit I am a guilty email marketer um, on the e-commerce side because that strategy works. Um, so even for SaaS, I've seen it for SaaS brands, certainly. I think um, that's a little bit what you're referencing. And I've also seen it on the retail and commerce side of things. Usually we, we title it like, a me- you know for lack of a better word, like a message from the CEO or a letter from the CEO or someone that works at the company that is plain text still has an unsubscribed link. So you do have the ability to process those. So yes, we're, we're pulling the wool over people's eyes a little bit. But in terms of, you know, opens, which not gonna, you know, take a, a, not gonna give that as much credit now, of course, in the MPP world that we're in, but opens are always really, really high for those. I've personally seen them inbox a little bit differently from a plain text standpoint versus kind of full HTML emails. And then from clicks, also seeing really strong uh, engagement on that front. But I will say some of the main commerce platforms for ESPs don't make it possible for you to see who's actually replied. So we we do kind of create them in that way to your point of like trying to invite the conversation and trying to start actually building that two-way relationship. But it's the tracking component that's actually missing in order to make that, I think, more actionable. So I'm really glad that you, you've touched on the importance of that. Because that's something I've kind of seen, and I've and I've, I've personally seen this. I don't reply to many emails myself. I'm an email marketer. I get tons of emails, I, and I'd love to hear from you. Like I'm not often sitting down, spending the time replying. Oftentimes because it's I'm not invited to, and if I do, it's probably because I was like really irate about something. It's not usually because I'm trying to have a conversation. I'm replying to something that is eliciting a positive engagement. And so I wonder if that's why companies aren't tracking it that way, because we don't think it's as common, you know, as maybe it should be.
2: I don't know what their thought process is, especially when they're inviting that engagement. My experience has been that there's no reply to my reply.
1: Mm -hmm. It's it's
2: not often that I do reply, but I, I did get a message during an onboarding for an influencers list, who had some really interesting ideas and content that I was finding useful. And she asked a question. Uh, she specifically asked for a reply to a question. And I got a message from her assistant. I was like, thanks. I let her know you replied. And mm. I was like, wow. Wow. You could fake it better. (laughs) Hey, Jen, uh, that's a great answer to my question. It just made me feel so small and unimportant, and I... I unsubscribed shortly oh! after. And then there was a, an app that I was using that I was getting a lot of value out of. And it was very low cost. And it was, um, it, it was really improving my productivity. And their email campaigns were often from the founder. And I replied to one of these messages. And I was like, this is changing my life. And I love it. And thank you. And silence. I got nobody acknowledged my acknowledgement. And it's a bummer.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's such a bummer. I think so. There's two things on that. That theme has come up a couple of times on the show of like, recognizing that we are trying to, you know, shift into this bi-directional relationship. Historically, there's been brand building, there's been relationship building. And I know that's something You and I are incredibly passionate about the email side and on the marketing side. Like that's what we are striving for. But it has been brands kind of disseminating down and it hasn't been two-way. So I think our goal is to transition again to that more two-way, bi-directional relationship. But if you don't have the mechanisms in place or even kind of the the desire to like honor that, it feels shitty. So like consumers want to feel special. Like they want to feel like people. They want to know that there's people behind the brands. And that we're gonna be treated like real people too. So like if you send an email and you're like, hey, I love the content you're putting out, or like, gosh, this app is life-changing, the bare minimum would be to have like folks in the you know customer experience team or preferably you know the leader of that influencer distro ready to reply or even having a canned response that's better than like, oh, my assistant got it, you know, thanks, like we'll pass it along. Because the the second point I want to make on this is just because it was it was personalized to you that didn't actually feel personal, and that's something I have have harped on quite a bit on this show because I think it comes up in email a lot. We can say, hey, we pulled in the first name, or you know, yeah, it went to Jen, but did that did that experience actually feel personal to you when you got the response from that recipient, or I'm sorry, the assistant?
2: Exactly. And there's not
1: any kind of easy solution for routing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It's a challenge. And I think, but I think to your point, I think the brands that are doing it well are the ones that are prioritizing that. And we've talked to some independent operators and founders on the show and and other brands too. And it it does seem to be the only way you kind of get over that hurdle is if it's prioritized like as a core kind of building block of the brand and of the ethos in terms of their values. So we talked to Eli Weiss from Olipop, big fan of him and how he kind of manages customer experience over there. And he talked a lot about the importance of like empowering the team, empowering the customer experience team to kind of like break, forget the script, like go off script, forget the canned responses, like look for those meaningful moments and those conversations that are just waiting to kind of happen and then have them like, Don't say we, as the brand say, I say like, you know, something goes wrong, say, I'm sorry. Or if there's something really positive, you know, build that personal kind of interaction. And I think we're only just kind of scratching the surface on brands actually doing that. Um, But I'd love to hear more from you kind of on, I guess, the, the evolution of that over, you know, the last 20 years. So through, you know. Oh, do you have something you want to say before we jump yeah,
2: in? Well, yeah. While, while we, we were talking, I'm yeah. looking through some old decks because mm-hmm. I thought of an email that a friend forwarded to me mm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Okay. So when people who have nothing to do with digital marketing talk about email marketing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: my ears perk up and I'm like, oh, tell me more. And this is like an acquaintance who sent me this email is a friend of my sister's. And his girlfriend received an email and they thought it was so great that they had a conversation about it. And he thought of me and he forwarded it to me. He like sent me a message on Facebook. He's like, send me your email address. I want to send you this email because you care about email and we cared about this email and we're attorneys. We don't know anything about email. Bless this (laughs) man. He he's terrific. Um my sister has great taste in friends. So his girlfriend uh, is a customer of Thrive Market. Something mm. happened with the order um and so she had to engage with uh, someone at the help desk or customer support or whatever you call that when it's brand side uh, troubleshooting and she worked with somebody named Stephanie and she received like, the follow-up email like how did things go with Stephanie and What was great about the email was that it told you a little bit about Stephanie. It's it's, uh, (laughs) Stephanie with an F. She loved, and I'm looking at it right now. Her favorite Thrive Market product is collagen peptides in her cup of coffee every morning. I don't know what that means, but I love that I know that about Stephanie, right? It made her human. There was an opportunity to rate. The engagement that you had with Stephanie. You could um, fill out a little form and explain why you rated Stephanie this way. And then you had the option to choose a gift for Stephanie. If you think Stephanie did a great job, then what do you think we should do for Stephanie? Should we buy her some wine or some movie tickets or a day at the spa? And I loved this. And at the time, I was able to figure out the solution that Thrive used for this. It wasn't sent through their ESP. Mm -hmm. It was like a separate kind of a customer satisfaction platform. And I thought I had the logo here on my slide deck and I don't. And I hate that I can't give this company a plug because
1: I thought this was pretty amazing. That is incredible. Yeah. And if you think of it, we can, I mean, definitely let me know. Well, I contacted the company when I figured it out, when I pieced
2: it together cuz I like I went into the code and was like, who are these people? I need to know more about this. And asked them permission if I could talk about them. But this was a couple of years ago, so the memory is slightly blurry now they were explaining that like they there are ways to take those replies and like route them into a slack channel where people mm-hmm. can reply and and um you know th- put a jira ticket in or whatever needs to be done they had the platform for it so like this can't necessarily just be solved with your email service provider it's uh, there could be some other third party solutions
1: that are part of solving this this two way conversation Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a fantastic example. Um, I do know of one other company, that a lot of folks use on the e-commerce side. So Gorgeous is a really big one that is very similar to that. And they integrate uh, with platforms like Klaviyo and PostScript. So folks can kind of have those two-way support conversations. So I think we are getting much better there in terms of the, the third-party technologies that are available to kind of integrate with other tech stacks. But I, I, wanna, I do want to talk about that example in particular, because I think what is so important, other than this person having a great first name, is of course the fact that they were made human, right? So it's no longer, you know, how was your support experience? Or how was your customer service experience? Because that alienates and draws a partition between the customer and the brand. And then it's still these two kind of people at at opposite ends. Whereas I think I would, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that they probably get much better response rates and also probably better, better overall feedback. Um, about these interactions, I bet there is a more positive sentiment because someone's not looking at that and just viewing them as like a robot or like a live chat with like that you don't know anything about. Like when there's another, another human on the other side of something, we typically soften ourselves a little bit more. It's easier to empathize. It's easier to relate. It's easier to view them as a person and not just a robot or a machine. And so I think that example is so beautiful. I'm so glad that you were <laughs> able to find that and pull it up on the fly. I I love your ability to do that because it's exactly I found I found the company <gasps> as, as well. It? Who is it? It's called Stella
2: Connect. I have not heard of them. I had a great conversation with them back in 2019 when I received the seed mail. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. But
1: um, I loved it. It was so inspiring. Yeah, it is so inspiring, and I really like the component too of you know not just asking you know hey how was your experience was your issue resolved I'm sure some of those you know those main questions but I love that they're putting it back on the the person that maybe had a, a support issue or whatever to say hey if you had an an above all excellent experience like how can we reward this person their good work and i I would imagine that that's that's real i sure hope it is and that's something we talked to to eli weiss about too it's like we expect a lot of customer support um agents customer you know experience folks i think we're really we're transitioning largely to the term customer experience because we are trying to create those memorable components i really like that distinction but we 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 pay them poorly oftentimes those roles are entry level they're they're not glamorous You, you know you you have some of you've got your your front facing folks of the brand kind of fielding some of the harshest experiences, and typically not rewarded, not empowered, um, and certainly not, you know, necessarily compensated at a level that they should be in order to provide world class service or provide those human experiences. And I think that we're, we're hopefully starting to kind of see the transition there. And I love that really it does seem like email still is largely a main way that some of those conversations are coming to life. I think that is still probably a channel I use the most when I do need to you know, form a complaint or go back and forth with someone. I'm, I'm working with like home insurance right now. That's all done through email. Like email is still there for those things. And it can really make or break Um, the experience in some of those in those situations. I love that example. We might have to get that from you. So we can like tweet about it if you're able to share it. Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. So I want to dial it back a little bit, go maybe a little bit blast from the past and kind of hear a little bit more from you. Because as we talked about, before we hit the record button, you are entering your 20th year in the email space. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about that and kind of what you've seen over the 20 years? Like there has to be an evolution there and I'd, I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah. Well, first of all, I never thought I'd get this old. So
2: <laughs> You look great. <laughs> well, thank you. Um Marketing was a second career for me, so I had already had a whole career (laughs) that uh, that I pivoted away from, and I was trying to get into media relations, communications, uh, because I had a background in uh, broadcast journalism, and I just did not fit into these agencies that did that kind of work. Um, which was kind of hilarious because I was the media, just not a culture fit. And and so I, I ended up in this communications marketing kind of role at a teeny tiny nonprofit in Huntersville, North Carolina. And I was wearing all the hats. Um, I had a little bit of a graphic design background, not a really great one. I understood the software. I was really uh, proficient in what we now call Creative Suite and I took a class. I was interested in HTML, which was a new thing <laughs> and <laughs> newish. It wasn't super mainstream back then and uh I remember I learned HTML on like a 30-minute web tutorial, oh. just the fundamentals, and then I took a class on Microsoft front page. And I used Microsoft front page to build my first email marketing campaign 20 years ago. (laughs) Amazing.
1: Amazing. (laughs) So
2: so bad. So bad. Uh, I was at a trade association for the art supply industry and we had our annual conference coming up and I was creating the print collateral like here's a brochure about the event. And the last page of the brochure is the registration form, which you are meant to fill out by hand, tear off and fax back to us. And somebody said, I know, I know. Why don't we send a registration email? And we're like, ooh, that's (laughs) so cutting edge. Let's do that. And I, I asked, I'm like, well, we would need a form for them to fill out online to do this registration. And they're like, nobody knows how to do that. Just send the PDF. So this email, this email is like, hello, our annual conference is coming up and you can register using this PDF document. Let me explain to you what a PDF is. <laughs> Let me explain to you how you are able to open a PDF. You need Acrobat Reader, and you can get it here. And you can fill this form out by hand after you print it and fax it back to us. So a really high quality user experience. (laughs) Um, I I will tell you the thing that I did right was it was segmented. And I did not know the word segmentation as it pertained to marketing at all. I just knew We had three different audiences that needed a unique message. And so I made three slightly different versions that just intuitively made sense to me. And it's amazing to me that that simplistic level of segmentation is still not widespread everywhere. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a lot of effort to copy paste and modify a little text and just set up a different mailing list. My first campaign, and it was horrible. I can't tell you anything about engagement or how many registrations we got as a result of that, because
1: it didn't even occur to us to track any of that. Of course. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to track the faxes that you get back from sending the PDF through the email?
2: Exactly. And can you tell if it was the email PDF or if it was the hard copy brochure? I don't know. Um, But after that, we started sending out a newsletter. So um, that saved us money because we were doing a monthly newsletter and the print costs were very high. The mailing costs were very high. And so we switched to a monthly electronic newsletter, or as they like to call it, e-news. Here's the (laughs) evolution. (laughs) And then a quarterly print version. So it saved a lot of money and we were able to bring information in more real time. And this seems so ridiculous now, but that was so, like, mind-blowing, cool. Email was just not being heavily used back then. So it became a really important channel. And then when I moved on to my next role, which was at a B2B company in Manhattan, um. The email program there consisted of one giant JPEG being embedded into an Outlook message and (laughs) BCC'd to the entire mailing list. (laughs) No one do this. This is not, no one do this anymore. (laughs) Do not recommend. Uh, So that's what was happening when I got there. And I wasn't personally hands-on touching the email at that moment in time, um, but the person who was touching the email at that moment in time knew the potential consequences of that, uh, including getting the whole company domain block listed, which happened. And so here is our entire sales team. All of their email has been shut down for 24 hours while IT is trying to fix this problem, because we weren't using an ESP. Oh, my gosh.
1: (laughs) The wild, I mean, those were the, I mean, I think we lovingly refer to it now, but really like the wild west of email, I guess, kind of days where there was still lawlessness, can spam was new, and people liked to think it didn't apply to them if they weren't sending you know, pornographic messages, because really, that's what it came out, you know, to control. And that's how you ended up having folks saying, like, no, just just throw the image in the email and, and CC the people, it'll be fine. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, also, the person who was pushing the button, it was an act of malicious compliance. Mm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Right, the consequences mm-hmm. were known to that person, the right. potential consequences, and then the worst happened. Right. Um, and then we finally got an ESP and that person exited the company. And at that point, I took over the email and was involved with a whole uh, redesign of our website to make it a real lead gen centric strategy um, and used email for nurturing. And we estimated that we'd generate about a million dollars in marketing generated sales that year. And instead it was 10 million. Uh-huh. So that was my first big email success story. I was like, "Ooh, I've got a knack for this. I yeah. figured out how to tap into people's psychology to uh, get them to part ways with their information, give them value in exchange for their information, get them to identify themselves as prospects you know lead scoring and and keeping tabs on their engagement and then delivering those red hot leads to sales <laughs> and it just it changed the company it was we didn't even have a CRM we had to use the ESP to send an email to the sales rep and their manager to say, hey, you now have a lead. Here oh you my go. gosh. You know, based on your territory and with a vertical that you serve. And it was a very, very difficult thing to do without a CRM, <laughs> but we did it. And then I said, I um, am underpaid for the very excellent work that I am doing here. And let's talk about this. And they said, no.
1: Oh, Unfortunate <laughs> that that's
2: still. <laughs> and that was the end
1: of my b2b email career (laughs) we can laugh about it now because i mean for anyone that knows you and of course anyone tuning in i mean jen is i'm gonna go ahead and this will be my first swear if i haven't sworn yet jen is an absolute boss bitch when it comes to email and knows not just a thing or two but uh, 10 million things at least and so we can laugh about that now um but of course you know there's elements of those of those things that still still happen. I've experienced unfortunate circumstances like that in my career that you know all too well, and I'm just grateful that you no longer gave your talents to that company and you you went elsewhere so thanks for that <laughs> I did
2: and I eventually ended up in my first totally full time email centric job at that point. I didn't know you could specialize in email. I had no idea I got um Contacted by a recruiter and she's like, Do you know email? And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I know some email. And she's like, I've got this email strategist job. Are you interested? And I was like, It's just email. She's like, Yes, it's just email. And I'm like, (laughs) All right, well, yeah, I'm open to a conversation. Let's talk about it. And I got the job offer and just threw myself into email. Like, I'm going to know everything about email. And uh, I didn't realize that I was actually doing cool, innovative things. I was just watching webinars and reading blogs and downloading white papers and taking the ideas that I was gleaning and translating them into something that made sense for my audience. And things were happening. People were converting. People were engaging. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And it was at that point that I realized that kind of blindly following all of the advice that I was getting from the email pundits of the time uh, wasn't a great idea because mm. sometimes I would follow these rules, these best practices or uh, these tips and I would have terrible outcomes. And when I applied some critical thinking to it, I could see why. And I'm like, why are these people the experts? So if they're giving bad advice. They're giving... <sighs> biased advice. They're not giving us a lot of context. Like we are suckers for data points. Like I did this and it produced this and you can do it too. And I'm like, oh, well, I've got to do this. Let me do this. And, And I'd go and do it and it'd be an absolute disaster. And I'm like, what happened? And so that's kind of when I started challenging what was out there And I wrote an article one day about, hey, like, I keep reading that this is a best practice, but I've decided to stop doing this best practice. And here are the reasons why. And I was working for this teeny tiny little niche agency in Paramus, New Jersey, right? And Litmus picked up my article and I was like, what? (laughs) Wait, did I just say something that people care about? And I have been on that buck the best practice
1: bandwagon ever since. I love that. And I'm, I'll am i go ahead and say it for you, but I can't take credit for this line, um, but I, I do use it. And I, I, I'll i always give you credit for it. Is that because best practices are bullshit, Jen? They 100% are, Stephanie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'd love to see other people in our industry challenge what we think we know. And I had, Uh, A great experience with that just a couple of weeks ago at the Inbox Expo conference in Valencia, Spain. Say more. uh, Kate Creamer was there. And she's a legend. She's amazing. We've been throwing around the word empathy in marketing for years and years and years. You've got to have empathy for your audience. Be empathetic. Put yourself in their shoes. And the name of her session was Against Empathy and Email. And I was like, oh, coming in hot. I love it. I love that you are challenging this thing that we have just, we've been holding as a truth for so long. And it's a concept that served us well. And now it's time. To challenge it, and Mm -hmm. she presented a new point of view. She presented um, psychology research. She also, I think, hand illustrated all of the slides, which was really amazing. That sounds like Kate. Yep, she's been known to do that. (laughs) Yes, so she she's challenging me and things that I have said, and I love that. And I actually i I have a um, email strategy workshop that I present throughout the year at various events. And I invite the audience to challenge me. If you disagree with me, you know what? Throw up a hand. Give me a shout. Tell me about your personal experience because it is valid. And just because I'm up here on the stage doesn't mean I'm the end-all, be-all. It doesn't mean I know everything. It certainly doesn't mean I know your audience. You know your audience. And um, one size does not fit all. Mm. So- Yeah. And and I don't look to the people who came before me for inspiration and guidance. I'm looking to the up and coming generation of leaders who are coming in with fresh eyes and new ideas and a whole different point of view on the world. That's where the best ideas come from.
1: Oh, I I love that and I so agree with you because I think through the show even I have found myself in that position of having to set aside my experience even which isn't isn't as deep and robust as yours and probably coming up on the about the halfway point there of I think I'm entering the 10th yeah I'll be about the 10th year next year which is wild. But so I'm also now in that position of, you know, through meeting folks on Twitter and kind of liaising and having these conversations with brand operators who are far younger than me. I have learned so much because they're saying, screw this, screw these best, you know, these best practices. They're like, we don't, that doesn't even apply. And I think the brands that are succeeding, and I think the marketers that are succeeding as well at pushing the industry forward are doing exactly that. They're not necessarily looking at what came before. They're looking at the landscape now and saying, Are we listening? Are we listening to the people, you know, that we want to talk to from our audience? Are we building relationships with our customers and treating them in a human and in an empathetic way? And how are we actually translating that to strategies that make sense for our brand rather than just carbon copying, you know, some top 10 tips for the best email ever or looking at a competitor and trying to replicate or reverse engineer their strategy um, because as you mentioned, oftentimes you can try that, but it doesn't always work that way. Someone you know, can preach and say, this is the way, this is because it worked for us and it's the be all end all. And then you can say, okay, great. I guess that's what I should do. And then it flops and you have to sit down and, and start to critically think about why that might be. Um, and we've talked a little bit about that on the show too, of the danger of brands just copying each other because it, it can become very easy to do that, I think in email, but also in SMS. Uh, I think we saw a lot of that this year with SMS as it kind of took off as a new channel where brands are like, we don't know exactly how to do this. So we're just going to start doing what we're seeing everyone else do. And I don't think that that is the key that is certainly not the solution to building those real and those authentic relationships um, and conversations with your end user. When I used to work for some
2: major ESPs in like a strategy role, consulting with brands who were using those ESPs, the question I hated the most was, you know, what are our competitors doing? Mm. What are the cool companies in XYZ Vertical doing? What's everyone else doing? And I would get so frustrated every time. And I'm like, "I, I don't really care what they're doing we don't want to follow the leader. We want to blaze the trail. So we need to talk about your objectives. We need to talk about your challenges. And then we will conceive of the ideas that will help achieve them. And we need some room to experiment and maybe fail, but learn until we figure out what resonates and works. I'm not saying don't do your competitive intel, but don't
1: Copy your mm-hmm. competitor. It's yeah. just sad. It's lazy. It's boring. I love that so much. I love. I'm going to repeat what you said. We're not trying to follow the lead. We're trying to blaze the trail. And I love that. I think so many more brands could benefit from taking that that lens and that approach. I've also experienced kind of that situation when I worked agency side, um, but also in house at, at major retailers. Of, well, well, what are your other, what are your other clients doing? You know, we, how are their emails performing? How much revenue are they making? And it's like, why are you so, if you're focused on that, you're focused on the wrong thing. And that might be actually why you're even having to ask those questions. There's certainly, I think, merit to some qualified benchmarks. Um, Some platforms have done a good job of adjusting that to be as relevant as possible for certain verticals, industries, similar product types. There's some things that are semi-applicable on a very high level. But ultimately, I stand with you on this and I was liked by a lot of clients and maybe not everyone's favorite email strategist when I would say (laughs) you need to focus on your own benchmarks. Like I am here to tell you if something is glaringly off track. um, But you know, just because one brand is doing X, Y, or Z and seeing X, Y, you know, results doesn't mean that's what you should actually be striving for. You might have a chance to do, to do better or your, you know, your kind of baseline might be very different from another brand. um, And that's ultimately what we should be, should be focusing on. So Mind your, own, We're mind your damn business.
2: suckers. We're <laughs> an absolute
1: suckers for
2: stats, right? You read that blog where someone says, "I did this and it produced, you know, whatever percentage of a conversion rate increase," and so marketers are like, "Oh, okay. So if I do that, I will see the same result." And there's always a marketer who is posting to a community somewhere, hey, does anyone have a stat on this very specific, obscure thing so that I can tell my boss how much better things will be if I do this one thing? And it's like, that stat does not exist, Mm -hmm. first of all. And secondly, it if it did exist, it's just,
1: it doesn't mean anything my okay to all the listeners who can't see this video yet my eyes could not have rolled further back in my head i i really <laughs> it is my least favorite thing and we still see that in some of our favorite communities as well like folks and i think i think the intention is good and i think we come there because we're like we have this army of email experts who have who we know have probably experienced similar things but i always want to chime in and be like no one's going to be able to give you the perfect stat, like, fuck the stats, it just it's not going to help you. And I'd like to take one other make one other blunt point of I think case studies are bullshit. I always hated that on the agency side. I think they're frou-frou, they're fluffy, it's all for the agency to kind of, you know, show pony around to prospective clients. But the strategists and kind of the folks in the execution roles in a really tough spot because you'd have clients coming and saying, well, we read this case study. And uh, we saw that you were able to, you know, grow so and so's revenue or list size by 500%. And why hasn't that happened for us overnight? And it's like, you're talking, you're all the numbers are hidden. So if you actually do the math, it's very easy to 10X a list, an audience size of 1,000 to 10,000. It's not that hard. And then throw that in a case study. And it's like your audience, you know, client, new client is already at 50,000. So different, different lay of the land here, not apples to apples. I'm going to, I'm going to go on record and say that I think case studies are bullshit. I don't like them. They're, they're great
2: <laughs> stories, yeah. right? They can be inspiring. But you're never going to know all of the context. And so those numbers don't mean a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And we're marketers. We know how to use numbers to tell stories. So why are we falling for our own tricks? Mm. And there are some bullshit stats that have just turned into urban legends. Like someone – did a blog post 15 years ago, and they're the only person to do this one thing. And their stat is just like living on in perpetuity, where really low quality content writers just keep perpetuating it. An example of that is when I was back in my first email strategy job, it suddenly became trendy to have campaigns that included video. Um, not Im- not embedded into the email. That wasn't something that anyone was experimenting with at that point in time yet. And there is some technology that makes that possible, on in certain email clients now. And depending on your strategy, you know, it could be amazing. Um, but all of the- it-, it just happened in this big wave. All these blog posts and reports and case studies were saying if you put. The word video in your subject, subject item, line, yeah. you're going to increase your click through rate by 68%. And uh, if you, you're just going to see so much more. Exa- and they all had these stats, stat after stat after stat all the magical things that will happen if you start driving people to a landing page that had video content and you had a little, um, image with like a little fake play button that actually takes you to the landing page. And I mean, just the word video. And so I start harassing my clients for video assets. What do you have? What do you have? Like, I can work this into your next campaign. Show me what you got. Like, what do you have that we can repurpose? We don't have to start from scratch. What do you have? Anything, any video will do. We just have to put the word video in the subject line. Yeah. How'd that work out? Oh, my God. Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> performance dropped on every single campaign consistently. Open rate and click rate declined uh. on every single one of those messages when compared to uh, other messages in the same campaign that did not have video content or um, averages, average performance of their other campaigns that were separate from those campaigns, every single one. And I'm just scratching my head like, wow, I guess, I guess that was bullshit.
1: (laughs) I love it so much. I'm going to (laughs) find, thank you for sharing that failure, right? Like, I think it's so important to also like acknowledge, like, I, again, I've been guilty of doing the things that we think are mainstream, we've been told, you know, by those that come before or those who are really loud right now, that this is the thing you should do, whether it's, you know, pressure from the industry or pressure from management to, to do the thing. And then you do it. And you're like, this didn't do what it said it was going to do. So now let's have a real conversation about what actually might work better. And I agree with you. Oftentimes, those things they might not be bullshit for certain people and certain strategies, right? Like if you take the general concept and translate it to, in a way that's appropriate, that can be effective. But what is bullshit is kind of going in and thinking that it's like a silver bullet and it's guaranteed to work. It's like, I love that because especially on the video front, it's like, imagine HBO who does send out video content in their emails, which are still usually animated gifs that look really good. But Highly appropriate for them. I think it would almost be weird and absolutely asinine for a video streaming company like Netflix, HBO, Hulu to be throwing the word video in their subject line. It's like, no shit. Like that's, I'm not going to look at that and be like, (laughs) how groundbreaking a video streaming service (laughs) has a video clip in the email. Like you don't say. So, you know, I think it's, 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 it's one of those really wild circumstances and I'm sure for some folks it does work well, um, but that singular stat is not what anyone should be tying their success to. We need to move away from those singular metrics
2: exactly just putting the word video in your subject line is not going to achieve this result no so it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with video and email it can be tremendously successful and I've asked marketers you know I, I've told them you know this sucked for me who did it not suck for how did you use it and one of the examples that someone told me about uh, they were working in higher ed and they were uh, communicating with alumni alumni I was in a sorority and we have been trained to say alumni because that is the feminine plural version
1: of alumni. Is that like alumni, Is there like an apostrophe or like an accent on one of the e's? Yes, there's a bunch of oh accents. It's
2: very French. No, there's no accents. <laughs> <laughs> but I make that mistake consistently because it was ingrained in my head as as a, uh, as a member of a sorority, which I'm my sorority sisters are very upset that I'm very anti-Greek life in our modern era, but that is a conversation unless, um, um, for, unless, for something
1: else. <laughs> unless it's from the alumni region of France, it's just a cult.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so so this um, this email marketer who was communicating with alumni of a higher ed institution said, we get incredible engagement on our campaigns where it's like an end of year video and it's photographs of all of the um, the new babies. That alumni have had, and so you see all of your former classmates and their new children, and and so you're looking for your friends, and so you're inclined to watch. Um, and she also, I think, gave the example of um, events, alumni events. You're going to see people you know, you might see yourself, and so there's a reason for you to watch those videos. You know, you want to see if your college boyfriend has lost all of his hair. You want to see if your um, college nemesis, you know, has, has, I don't even bothered to show up. I don't know. Like all of, all of those, all of the reasons you might want to see your classmates in a video. Yeah. You're going to watch that. I would watch that. But I mean, for me to just stick a random video into a campaign for the sake of putting a video in a campaign is a terrible idea. And that's
1: what I did. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing the outcome of the terrible ideas. I think it's very good for us to learn what doesn't work just as well as as what does work. And I think another thing that comes up often, and I think this is a huge, like, and I love tearing, not these people down, but this idea down, that there are still a list of words that you can't put in the subject line because it is guaranteed to land you in spam. So like if um, if putting the word video is guaranteed to get you a 68% click through rate, then putting the word free is apparently guaranteed to land you in spam and it's just very funny to think that that, you know, in some in some elements of the internet, some spots on the internet, we haven't moved beyond that. I still see some noteworthy people on Twitter with a lot of followers tweet out things like that. And I'm like, nah, that's, that's not, it's not real. You can't be saying that shit because it's not true. It's just not true. Urban legends, man. Like what is the source of
2: that, that best practice? Mm -hmm. Is it still relevant? (laughs) And when it comes to these, like the word free, that was rooted in some sort of reality that was 15 years ago when spam filters were super rudimentary. Mm-hmm. they are really sophisticated now. And just look at your own inbox and see how many times the word free pops up. You see it in your inbox. You know it's coming through. So like, why would you even think that you can't use that word? Or what about those studies? It's like, here are the top 100 keywords that maximize open rates. And it's spaghetti volcanoes pterodactyl. And it's like, oh, how am I going to get pterodactyls into my subject line this month? I mean, i I bet pterodactyl would get you a pretty high open rate just because it's a little obscure. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh, yeah, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's fun plays on words with that. If, if anyone can figure it out, it's Chubby's. So let them figure it out.
2: <laughs> um, you know who has some good data on this is Phrasee. Mm. which is an AI company. I know you knew th- know this, but for the benefit of your audience, it's an AI company that helps brands improve and optimize the language that they use in marketing campaigns. And uh, When it comes to the email channel, they can help you uh, optimize your subject lines to maximize engagement. And they did a study of like the, the type of psychological strategies that were most commonly used in is it twenty twenty or maybe it was up to twenty twenty one at that point, I should look for the study. Uh, I found it okay. <laughs> I came slightly prepared today. Oh my gosh, apparently, um, okay, it was the emotions that were associated with high performing subject line copy. Uh, for 2021.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: this was up to, I think the research was released in maybe like late October, early November. So up to that point in time. And the idea was like, this can prepare you for the peak holiday season. Here's what we've learned. And um, offbeatness, it does achieve an uptick in engagement. It can, but it's not number one. It's And the options that they had were Offbeatness, urgency, friendliness, curiosity, and directness.
1: What was number and one?
2: Directness.
1: Mm-hmm. We've
2: had enough of the games, right? Um, urgency and FOMO marketers have destroyed it, right? Nobody believes it anymore. Um
1: The last sale ever until tomorrow, and then we're going to send it five more times, and then we're going to extend it again. Like, yeah, it's all bullshit. (laughs) Curiosity has
2: its place, and I wouldn't eliminate it completely, but when you compare curiosity against specificity, you often find that curiosity can produce a higher open rate, but poorer engagement beyond that point, whereas more specificity will... People are self-segmenting. And so open engagement might be a little lower, but there's a higher likelihood of them taking the journey that you want them to take beyond the point of
1: open. Yeah, they're and more so- qualified, more qualified openers because they're, they want, they're expecting to tie the internal content to what they read about in the subject line. And if there's that cohesion and it's clear and not misleading, you can expect them to kind of take that next step a little bit more.
2: And I can't help but think that we have changed as a society over the last two years. We have been through collective trauma. The lens that we look at the world through has changed forever. And I don't want to play your silly marketing games. Just be direct with me. Just Mm -hmm. be straight. Just deliver on the promise you make on this subject line. Um, Cut the bullshit.
1: There's a theme here now. (laughs)
2: Probably the best subject line I got this year or last year for 2021 was from Me Undies. Are you a subscriber? I'm not. I have seen their emails in the past. Say more. Why? Why did you love it? Well, I, I mean, like I had to get my Grogu underpants because I'm nerdy like that. But I got this email, and the subject line was "Corgi Butts Inside." Perfect. Say no and more. Guess, guess what was in that email? Corgi Butts. Corgi butts, animated gifts, and corgi butts. I mean, they delivered. They made me a promise and they
1: delivered directness for the win. And it was still fun. It was still fun because I want like anyone that's on, you know, even on the B2B side. I think we hear that oftentimes or even brands that are commerce based that are more serious thinking like, well, we couldn't put that in in the subject line. We can't have that much fun. You can put damn corgi butts in your subject line as long
0: as you follow through
1: (laughs) and put the corgi butts in the email. And those things will do well. First of all, who doesn't like fluffy corgi butts? I mean, you are not my people if you don't, but also like it's again, it's that cohesion element of you said, you said one thing, go ahead and deliver on it. So yes, this is a delightful and a hilarious example that some (laughs) brands can pull off well, but I think the ethos of that makes a lot of sense. Like people are tired um, of being jerked around. Um, People are tired of having to kind of critique and theorize what different subject lines mean, let alone various marketing messages. It's like our brains are fatigued for various (laughs) reasons. Like the last thing we need in our very cluttered inboxes But also now even on the SMS side, new marketing channels is to have to kind of like play this game of figuring out what a brand is trying to say. It's like, if if I don't understand the joke, if I don't understand the content, if I don't know what you're saying in like two, maybe three seconds, I'm out. You're not going to get my, you know, positive or negative interaction. You're just not going to get an interaction from me at all. And I think that's where we're at is people are looking for those real interactions that actually mean something to them. I think you you mentioned this very, very early in the episode of conversations don't just have to be something where someone replies, it can also come through in eliciting a real reaction, a real emotion in that person, because that's still kind of building that connection. Um, and I really love that. I think that's beautiful, because I think something we've talked about a lot on the show is that concept of like conversational commerce is meant to be two way. But I I actually think in some capacities it might not have to be. If you're still listening and you're delivering experiences and you're delivering content and you're delivering messages that are landing for your audience and they're they're creating those those positive emotional reactions. I think that's conversational too. And so I, I really I like that you've brought up both of those points.
2: I'd, I'd agree. It's uh, positive sentiment is more important than ever before. Um, and that's something else that Frazy has been studying. They uh, did some kind of a survey of consumers and, and asked them, like, what is your likelihood to buy from a brand that has really pushed negative emotions on you versus positive emotions? And I've got the stats here. 68% of consumers would not buy from brands using negative emotions, but 69% of consumers would buy from brands using positive emotions. And mm. so those cheap tricks, bait and switch, you know, fake friendly froms and fake, fake forwards.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, oh,
2: the, yeah. The fake forward where it's like, Oh, hey, what do you think about this idea for a sale, Joe? Oh, I think it's great. Our audience is going to love this. Oh, they make me, they cringe. It's so cringy. I do keep hearing from marketers that those are still landing. They are still performing, but that they also always get some complaints. Mm-hmm. And so there's a level of risk associated. Like if you, if, if I receive a message like that, it makes me feel pukey, right? Like, oh, yeah, come on, this, this a- is ridiculous.
1: It's the short-term ROI, and that's something we've talked about on, on the show too. Of yeah, you can send the full blast email if you want to make up more money. It's going to reach more people. You're going to see more unsubscribes. There's definitely counter, you know, balancing that happens when you when you use these strategies. But there there's that immediate uptick that some brands can see and ultimately prioritize. I've certainly worked for organizations where management was only focused on the immediate now short-term KPI and ROI and not focused on long-term brand erosion, long-term, you know, like negative sentiments that kind of come with that and ultimate long-term loss and churn of that audience because it's like, all right, yeah, you got, you know, a handful of your folks to engage with that. Maybe it did land. Maybe they thought it was funny. But then you also drove some potentially loyal people away that you're not likely to get back because you left that really sour taste in their mouth with a cringy strategy. Um, and so I, I, I really hope marketers and brands everywhere kind of focus on that long-term element, not just the immediate, you know, what can we send right now uh, to, to drive that?
2: Yeah, the cheap tricks to beef up your... You know, you know your open rate. Like, oh, look! I tricked you into opening this. Look at this, boss! I'm look at this big popping engagement. Yay me! Uh, But what did that actually mean in the end? Right? Did you maximize your customer lifetime value? Did you increase loyalty? Did you make people feel good about your brand because you tricked them into engaging with you? Retention is the key to success. That is how you keep your reach as big mm-hmm. as possible. And you should be doing everything in your power to be to maximize the size of your list w- with quality, not garbage subscribers. Size matters like, a little bit. To, to keep it large and healthy and to not compromise that because there's a correlation then to your bottom line. If you're reaching more people, you're going to make more money right it's logical but you don't want to risk uh you know compromising the the long-term success i absolutely agree with you there and the trend that we've you know we we've talked about like oh personalization like oh this is an email about me that makes me feel good um uh, empathy oh this email understands me that makes me feel good humor um this email is funny. That makes me feel good. <laughs> and the, the trend that we then saw, um, in the last several years is like a sense of solidarity. So mm-hmm. brands that have a philanthropic angle or have taken a strong stance on social and political issues, um, all of that ties into like, oh, we agree on this. We both think this is important. That makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, And I would lump dogs into that category. You like dogs? I like dogs, right? Sense of solidarity. That makes me feel good. So you don't necessarily have to touch these hot button issues to create that feeling of sameness, Mm. Um, although you do see a lot of it lately. It is risky and brands are very, very afraid of saying the wrong thing these days as they should be because sometimes they are screwing it up.
1: Yeah, I want to I want to say two quick things because what I think I'm hearing you say is that cheap tricks are not conversational, right? Like we wouldn't tolerate that in real life and Val had a we talked to Val Geisler on an episode and she was pretty great about talking about, you know, if we just pause and think about some of the things we do as marketers and then translate that into a real life, you know, interaction it wouldn't land um, like you wouldn't chase them some ar- someone around as a giant pop-up and like get in their face when they're trying to shop through a store. It's like, give me the X, like, leave me alone. Like some of those silly things where it's like, we do it online and we we harness those cheap tricks for, for whatever reason, because we think it'll give us those, those quick wins. Um, but they're actually, you know, hurting things long-term and they're not conversational. What I think I'm also hearing you say is that solidarity community unity on certain sentiments and topics is conversational, right? Like political and social justice elements. I think, I, I know you've talked about this and I, 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 I'm i curious if you have more to say on how brands kind of inserted themselves into the conversations that were already happening, right? I think it was it was a make or break time where a lot of brands um, needed to take a stance, um, positive or negative, and they, they chose that and by doing so, I think that created a conversation um, with their audiences that were either positive or negative. Well, those conversations are not always
2: happening necessarily in a reply to an email or in a reply to an SMS. The most powerful ways that our audiences are communicating with us is on social media. Mm-hmm. And they will let it rip mm-hmm. when they disagree with you. Um, and. A great example of this would be uh, summer 2020, there were marches around the world uh, in support of Black Lives Matter. And so a lot of brands started expressing support for that movement. Whereas a year earlier, 2019 and earlier, I did a search of my own inbox. Who actually used the phrase Black Lives Matter in my inbox in 2019 or earlier? One brand. Mm. And it is the brand that has been probably the most visibly political over the last five, six years. And it's Penzi Spices. Yeah. But then 2020, my inbox is blowing up with these messages. Most of those campaigns were actually very thoughtful and well done because they um, expressed humility right? We have not been doing the right thing. We recognize our role in being part of the problem. They were specific in uh, the ways that they were changing to address issues in America and be a part of positive change. And they shared information on how you, the recipient of the message, could also support change. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: I was impressed by the quality of those campaigns. But then here comes the National Football League, (laughs) who has not been supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, all of a sudden going, oh, gosh, we feel so bad about these murders, and our hearts go out to these families. And they made this public statement, which did not acknowledge Colin Kaepernick and his respectful protests of violence against people of color over a series of years and how he was essentially like lost his career as a result of this. It did not use the phrase black lives matter. And so they were called on it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, cause, cause it's it not okay. Yeah. It feels inauthentic. Exactly. And so they had to backtrack a few days later, Roger Goodell had to make a statement and say, we were wrong. And let us tell you the ways in which we were wrong. Now, fun fact about the National Football League, I briefly worked for the NFL Alumni Association, which at the time I worked there was an advocacy organization for retired players. And we were operating on a a loan from the league. And so I worked pretty closely with some very important people at the NFL. And this was around the time that um, Ray Rice had physically assaulted his fiancee on video. Mm -hmm. And there was outrage when this video started making the rounds and the, the league was silent until there was outrage. And then they were like, oh, beating up women is wrong. And there should probably be consequences for that. Yeah, we think beating women is wrong. And so I had the opportunity to ask people in positions of authority, what's going on over here at the NFL? Mm -hmm. And they told me exactly what was going on. The NFL does not have a point of view. The NFL does not have values or – the, the NFL doesn't believe in anything except for one thing, and that's the fans. Whatever the fans want, that's what the NFL does. And so the NFL waits for popular sentiment to shift, and then they blow in that direction. Mm. They don't set the tone. They respond. And they it, it, consistently, you have seen this trend where they're just a few steps behind. They're never the ones who step up and say, this is not going to be tolerated. This is not right. They
1: wait. Mm. And it's not serving them. Yeah. It's a fascinating social commentary on the power of community, um, which Kristen LaFrance would have a field day with. Um, we'll We'll have to talk more about that. But I think on the unfortunate negative side of that, too, of of waiting too long to listen to your fan base, or also maybe potentially giving them too much power, um, if it's not, you know, in favor of progressive social movements, or, you know, good morals and things that, that we just know to be to be good and right. And so I think it's it's very, brands can walk a dangerous line of giving too much power to those communities and not taking a stand and then just kind of you know, going wherever the wind blows, which is kind of what it sounds like they're doing, potentially bad joke here. But to call it back to the the video aspect of, you know, putting video in subject line, here's hoping when that video was going viral, that they did not harness that strategy, that would have been a very bad time. And another reason to not just listen to some of those things of like, let's, you know, use the ultimate clickbait and send an email about that. So, you know, yeah, I think taking lots of those things with a grain of salt, and ultimately pausing and like looking around at where we are in the world right now. Not to make things somber or dark, but I think that 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 can go very well for brands that truly try to take a pause and take a step back and listen, rather than you know speak, um, but also speaking when when they should, and you know making some taking some stances when they when they need to take them as well, um, especially in such trying, unprecedented, but have now become precedented times.
2: <laughs> you know, what's interesting is um, there, there was one brand that went in the other direction uh, about a year ago, chain of restaurants called Pizza Inn, mm. which at the time was publicly traded. I'm not sure if it still is, but its stock price on the NASDAQ had fallen below a dollar per share. And it was at risk of being delisted. And conveniently, at the same time, they put out a press release and some social posts throwing their support behind Donald Trump and the Stop the Steal movement. Mm. And it was very poorly timed because they put out the press release on January 5th and the social posts on January 6th. And... um. We all know what happened on January 6th, and so from that point forward, anytime they posted anything on their socials about pizza, <laughs> everyone would reply with a political statement that was had nothing to do with the post. People were just, the conversation was happening, and we're letting you know we're not going to eat your pizza. <laughs> Right. It was kind of amazing. It was just such – it was clearly strategic, like let's try and rally the support of this this base to try and get them to eat our pizza and get our stock prices back up and – It was
1: such a colossal fail. We should probably look that up right now. When Yeah, when conversations go wrong, (laughs) (laughs) when brand sentiment doesn't land, yeah, that very unfortunate, maybe unfortunate timing. Obviously, the events that transpired on that day, um, I will not trivialize. Uh, It was awful, and it was a terrifying marker in our history as a country, Um, but maybe positive timing for when they showed their true colors as a brand. And a lot of people had an opportunity to say, Oh, we are actually not going to support you um, because you made it very obvious what side you stand on. And we're going to choose to not agree with you. Um, So, you know, expressing that side of the conversation as well. So yeah, man, I love, I love where this conversation has gone. Um. (laughs) I I, I just confirmed
2: they, they weren't, delisted. They were threatened with being delisted. Ah. Uh, as we we're speaking right now, their stock is at $1.08 per share. Hidden where it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Pizza man. in. Man,
1: wild. Well, that's a fantastic example of brands, I think, maybe not listening or being forced to listen after the fact. But I would love to hear from you on, I guess, two things, because we're coming up um, a little over the top of the hour, which I knew we would, and I was so excited to have <laughs> such a fantastic conversation with you. Should but we would... offer a prize to anybody who's listened this long? Ooh, <laughs> I've got some swag. I, sh- I could definitely send. I've got lots of email swag I have acquired. I've got a litmus t-shirt if anyone wants one. <laughs> no pillows, though.
2: <laughs> Let us know you listened all the way to the end. <laughs>
1: yeah, love it. Tweet us. <laughs> we will we'll ask. Oh, we should ask some. like we can find a way to like tweet and ask like a follow-up question of like if you listened you'll know the answer to this we'll think of one would be good I am curious to hear from you on kind of what are your predictions for the future I've always respected the ones you've had and but specifically on where do you think conversational commerce is kind of heading and how do you think we can continue to make marketing more human
2: Did you watch Bo Burnham Inside?
1: I sure did. (laughs) Twice, because the first time I think I was shocked. And then the second time, I'm pretty sure I cried. (laughs)
2: Well, he had that whole bit where he was like a, a brand strategist. Yeah. And he's like, you know, you need to let the world know, T. Rowe Price, that you're not racist in theory. The question isn't whether you care about our products. The question is whether you're going to join us in the fight against Lyme disease. (laughs) And so he's like poking fun at these values-based messages and these political and social centric messages. And I felt like he had taken a dagger and kind of poked me in the heart and given it a little bit of a twist because this is something that I'm passionate about and that I talk about. And he's, he's laughing at it. And. Oh, it's good
1: satire though. It's good. It
2: was, it was true. It was absolutely true. And so I think the lesson is that our audience is so much smarter than ever before. They're more informed than ever before. They are more passionate about what's happening in this world than they have ever been before. And you can't screw with them. You can't play games with them. You can't trick them. Manipulation ultimately will fail. And so that's why we saw in that study from Frazee that directness for the win. That's the trend right now. Um, Being a transparent organization, because you will be called out, right? There's this big movement for brands to brag about their employee culture. Well, it's going to get out if you're lying, Right. right? It is risky
1: to try and pretend like you are doing it right. I have worked for those companies and they have, there was one and I won't even name them, but they came under fire on social media because they put up a post about top tips for women when negotiating their salaries. And a lot of former women of the organization uh, that saw that post on social media were like, this is really ironic because you didn't, Pay me adequately, and then when I tried to negotiate, or, or I was actually already employed, and I tried to raise my concerns around my salary, you know, you you told me I was being greedy, or you didn't, you you there was no negotiation. And then I also found out that my male counterparts were significantly overpaid for the same roles, the same work, and so that was one of those moments where. that that company liked to claim that they were in support of these things and, you know, outwardly bragged about their their tips and their, their resources for women in this industry and did not walk that walk internally. And it definitely you know, were there long-standing repercussions? No, but it did make its way up to leadership. And, you know, there were some alarm bells uh, internally because it was glaringly obvious that there was a mismatch on what they were posting on social media and how they actually operated um, internally. I feel like brands
2: now, you have a, a social obligation, right, with, with great power in this world, which brands have, and the executive leadership of those brands and all the money that they're making you now have an obligation to the world that you live in to make it a better place. And you need to have the humility to say we're not perfect.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if we don't see that transparency, then it, it's harmful to brands right now. Like, loyalty is at such high risk. Consumers have so many options and it really just takes one negative interaction for them to bounce. So get it together, people. (laughs) You're not gonna trick anyone. You just have to be transparent and wholesome and good.
1: Mm -hmm. You know? I love that. And I think something that we've learned, I think we're learning as marketers, as consumers, and as people in this world right now is that we are Or maybe brands need to recognize that we're not that different, right? Like we as marketers are the same folks that make up the brands that we are consuming from and interacting and want to have those positive sentiments towards and want to build those positive relationships with. So I think the way that you're saying, you know, consumers are smarter than they've ever been. They have, you know, specific expectations and requirements. Like they're not going to let you like toy with them anymore is very fair because I think what we're all looking for this is going to sound a little like world peace ish is like, we're wanting that respect that we're kind of, you know, we're all in this right. And not going to say we are all in this together, but like we want to see ourselves in those brands. We want there to be that reciprocity and that recognition that like, we're not that different, right. Brands and us it's, there's still people kind of making up those things and the same folks that are working for those companies are kind of going through basically the same uh, experiences that their recipients, their customers, and the folks that are interacting with them are going are going through, and I think that's that can be a really beautiful thing um, if it's done well, and if folks are listening and they they prioritize that because it's ultimately building that that human connection and really opening the conversation around like. What does it mean to be human right now for all of us? Um, Gosh, we're we're ending this on a very profound. (laughs) I mean, and it can be as simple as Corgi butts. It can be as simple as Corgi butts. People don't let us think or make you think, yes, that it has to be like world peace level, you know, in terms of how brands approach that. I agree. Levity goes a long way. Tapping into what you know your audiences love and resonate with can go a long way. Um, just proving that you're listening, I think, can go a long way. And that's something I think we've we've learned uh, throughout these conversations, too. The brands that are listening, the brands that are going where those conversations are happening um, can do really well if they take that step back. But ultimately, I think what we've really learned is that the future of conversational commerce and the kind of human element of marketing, I guess, is brands not talking at their customers anymore and really opening up that dialogue to be two way. And I still think we're only scratching the surface on that, Um, which excites me. I'm excited to see what those that come after us do and how those things kind of continue to evolve um, because we're ultimately, you know, consumers as well. I love to find brands who make me feel like I can talk to them, who text me back, who email me back, who reply on social, or who listen to those conversations happening in those channels and then very clearly translate that into their marketing strategies. Those are the brands I like to support. Those are the brands I want to see more of. Um, and I bet that's what a lot of our listeners are looking forward to.
2: I think so. However, I must say, I got like a Merry Christmas text from a furniture company.
1: and Oh, no. We should talk about we should talk about happy holiday emails. And texts. I, I didn't need talk that. About them.
2: I did not need that SMS on Christmas morning.
1: <laughs> I so agree with you. That's another thing I don't stand by. And I think I saw in Women of Email recently. Some you know folks kind of brought this up, and in Email Geeks as well, people saying you know how do holiday cards typically perform as an email or a text? And some po- some folks will say, hey, you know, it makes sense for this audience. I hate them. I hate them as a marketer because somehow, damn it, they're always last minute which is bananas, the, day, the, the holidays don't change. How, how you can't plan for these throughout the year makes no sense to me. But also if you can't plan for them, forget, throw the damn things out. We don't need them. We don't need them as marketers. I don't like them as, as a consumer. I have very rarely ever received one and opened it and been like, wow, that was of positive value. Like it just, it feels like more clutter. It definitely feels more for the brand than for me. And I think that's something I'm really passionate about on the marketing side is taking a step back and asking that question of like, what is this doing for the person we're sending it to? Is this adding value to their life or are we just sending it to say that we sent it? And I think holiday cards, whether that falls in the email side, the SMS side, whatever it falls firmly in the, we're just sending it to say we sent it category and I hate them. Holiday cards are bullshit.
2: <laughs> I have heard some marketers say they've seen really great engagement on those campaigns. And, and I found that surprising when there was no value. I'd say like the most memorable holiday greeting I can think of getting in recent years came from Movable Ink. Hmm. because they said, hey, listen, we care about charitable endeavors. We've got money to donate. Uh, we were going to have a Christmas party, but there's a pandemic. And so we're going to take our whole Christmas budget and we're going to give make donations. These are the four o- organizations we'd like to donate to. Which one do you want us to donate to? Hmm. And I think what they were doing was giving a proportion of the donation to those organizations individual orgs based on the the votes that they received. And they used their open-time personalization technology to show the results of those polls in real time. And I thought that was clever and it made me uh, able to Feel do good. something. Yeah. I did something good. They did something good. And that was nice. You know, what would have been really nice is if women of email was one of the charities that they had included on that list. So okay. that's just, you know, a little note to my friends at Movable Inc.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Plug it in there. No, I agree. That is a that is a more thoughtful strategy that to me does not come across as, you know, sending it just to send it. I think there's an engagement play there, you know, they're getting some valuable data on where their audience wants to see them put their, you know, their dollars and and kind of stand behind that. And I also think that is a feel good moment of saying, Hey, you know what, we, we could do X, Y, and Z with this money, we're going to reallocate it towards something good. And, and we want to hear we want your voice that's inviting that contribution to the conversation. So I I do think some of those things um, can be good. But when it's just the happy holidays from brand, it's like, spare me, please, unless you're sending me an actual (laughs) card with an actual gift card in it or a discount, you know, something more, you know, usable for me, just just don't send it. Just don't send. it. There's merit in not sending things. There's good, there's good conversation that comes from that too, on the brands that opt out. We could, we could do a whole separate dissertation on that. But the, some of the brands that don't say things, I have a lot of respect for as well. Hmm.
2: Sounds <laughs> like a whole episode
1: could be dedicated <laughs> to yes. silence. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there's, there's, there's wisdom in silence. So we are coming up on the, I would say the top of the hour, but it's top of the hour and a half, which is great. And something <laughs> which, yeah, Jen, I, know, I knew for us this would, this would be no problem at all. Something we do love to do at the end of our episodes is kind of just give you a chance to say whatever else might be on your mind. So it's kind of an open floor moment, no pressure. You have left myself and our listeners with a lot of wisdom. But if there's any final sentiments you have or anything you want to reiterate, now is your chance. Floor is yours. Hey, quick plug for women of email. We are
2: currently the largest organization in email marketing history. We are a charity organization. It is free to be a part of our organization. We are funded completely by donations and volunteers, and it is a very wholesome, uplifting, and informative place that can help people advance their careers. You are welcome to join if you are someone who identifies as a woman or you are gender queer, gender nonconforming um look for our facebook group fill out the application on our website i'm sorry that our website is so ugly um but it is something that i slept together in 2016 over a weekend and haven't had time to work on since because we're donation funded and volunteer run but the spirit of our community is very strong so please join us or feel free to make a small donation
1: which one, one. Yeah. <laughs> um it's women of email not women of websites so not here to judge on the website front um and i'll echo that i fully stand behind women of email um and this this is this is not our sponsor for the show, <laughs> but <laughs> I would not be here doing what I'm doing truly without women of email and knowing Jen throughout my career. Um, so I want to give yeah huge shout out to women of email for anyone that hasn't heard of it, hasn't been part of it. Please join. We have wonderful conversations like this all the time. The fantastic network um, of women in email talking about marketing, but we talk about other fun things too. There's lots of goats and corgi butts. So it's always a good time. <laughs>
2: Come for the goat emojis and, and memes and stay for the career accelerating insights.
1: I love it. Jen, obviously, I know where to find you. I'm, I'm grateful that I have your personal contact information, which I will keep to myself. But if our listeners want to find you or find out more about women of email, where can they follow you on social? Where are those channels that you're, you're hanging out and, and having those conversations? My handle for everything
2: is Gen Capstraw. One word. Gen Capstraw. So I'm trying to build up my Instagram right now. Follow me on Twitter, uh, follow me on LinkedIn, and I talk about email and women's issues in the workplace and a little bit of DEI. I, I've been talking a little bit about neurodiversity. In our industry, which is not something that anyone seems to be addressing yet. Uh, And I think there are a lot of us who are a little different than the rest. (laughs) So yeah, hit me on the the Instagram, the Twitter, the LinkedIn. I am always looking to build up my uh, network in those places. I, I, I love engagement on those channels. So say hi.
1: Please do. Jen is an A plus follow. I can't recommend following her enough from a professional standpoint, but also personally, Jen, thank you. I am so grateful and honored that we got to do this today. Um, How far our friendship has come, how far our careers have come. This was a real treat for me, but I also know for sure for our listeners. So thank you for spending uh, our last episode of season one of Conversational Commerce with us. Thank you. And congratulations on your first season. You are making shit happen. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, folks, stay tuned for more. These won't be this won't be the last conversation we have. Um, definitely more to come. But yeah, follow us on Twitter at Com Compod. Stay tuned for what's next.
0: As we wrap up today's episode, another shout out to our sponsor, Postscript, the leader in SMS marketing for Shopify and Shopify Plus Brands. If you're not already using PostScript, be sure to check out their free 30-day trial. That's right, 30 full days, an entire calendar month for free. We've heard some brands have made over $100,000 during their free trial, so don't sleep on this. For your 30-day free trial, check out the link in our show notes or visit postscript.io. Again, that's postscript.io to start your free trial today.